Welcome, everybody, to the ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the esteemed neuroscientist Antoine Lutz. But before we get started, as usual, a few brief housekeeping items. Our book study group on the Dreams of Light book is still going on, and you're most welcome to join us. We probably have at least another four more months to go. My second book of the year, the Lucid Dreaming Workbook, was just released. I have to say the workbook format was really fun to create. Things are relatively quiet with the upcoming holidays on the teaching front, so stay tuned for future events around all that. As for my guest today, the neuroscientist Antoine Lutz belongs to that rare breed of contemplative scientist who simultaneously brings rigorous science to his serious meditation practice. I met Antoine over 10 years ago when I was invited to his lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and spent many hours in the fMRI doing a number of imaging studies. Since then, we've attended conferences and retreats together and I consider him a dear friend. Our conversation begins with a look at neurophenomenology a term coined by the groundbreaking scientist Francisco Varela, and a term that underlies much of the scientific exploration of meditation. Francisco was an absolute giant in this world, and Antoine was one of his main students and eventual colleagues. In this conversation, Antoine and I talk about the importance of honoring first-person perspectives, that's the phenomenology part, and third-person perspectives, or the neural part, without reducing one to the other. Dr. Lutz discusses his extensive research around pain and the importance of de-automatization, how we're essentially automatons running on automatic ignorance, where everything we experience is automatically referenced to self, a referencing that actually creates all our suffering and the very sense of self. This unconscious referencing also generates the sense of duality altogether, which is something that could possibly be studied in the lab. What is the promise and peril of scientifically studying meditators? Why should a meditator care about any of this? Using science, philosophy, psychology, and the wisdom traditions, this conversation ranges from the theoretical to the personal, from the abstract, things like intersubjective realism, to the really practical, how to work with pain. I think you'll quickly see why Dr. Lutz is one of the pioneering researchers exploring the meditative mind and how his work is really benefiting the world. Hi, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I'm really excited to introduce and spend the next hour or so with, with a dear friend of mine and really one of the leading neuroscientists studying the interface between the contemplative traditions and science altogether. And so as usual, I will do a brief, um, somewhat formal introduction of Antoine. And then we're going to jump right in because we've got a host of uh, really delicious topics that I think we're going to be discussing. So Dr. Antoine Lutz is currently a director of research 
at the French Medical Research Institute and the Lyon Neuroscience Research Center, where he co-leads the experiment, I'm sorry, the experiential neuroscience and mental training team. After a master's degree in engineering and a BA in philosophy at the Sorbonne, he did his PhD in cognitive neurosciences in Paris, or Paris, with Francesco Varela, where he applied for the first time his neurophenomenology program to the study of neural correlates of attention and perception. And what makes uh, Antoine so unique is uh, he's one of this kind of new um, breed, so to speak, of contemplative scientists. So he studied since 1998 with teachers, including Minjur Rinpoche, Sonia Rinpoche, Matthew Ricard, and Joseph Goldstein. So thank you, Antoine, so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule as a research scientist to spend some time with us. Uh, I guess this morning here and afternoon where you are. So welcome, my dear friend. Uh, welcome and thank you so much for your, uh, this invitation. I'm really delighted to, to have this opportunity to connect again with you. It's been a while since I, I saw you in Madison as a, as a guinea pig. So it's, it's really fun to see you in, in this context now. Yes, it's been a delight. I'll, I'll share with our listeners. My, my first experience with Antoine was in fact at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is now under the you know, um, stewardship of um, Richie Davidson, one of the leading epicenters in the world, his Center for the Investigation of Healthy Minds. And so I was invited there to engage um, over an entire weekend um, doing studies on pain meditation, some compassion practices and the like. And, and uh, Antoine and I had a fair amount of time to hang out afterwards. And so I, um, I appreciate him as a rigorous scientist and also as a dear friend. And along those lines, Antoine, let's, let's talk ever so briefly about uh, our mutual um, friend, Francesco Varela, because I think on some level we have to pay homage to him and to his legacy. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I had a great opportunity of meeting him actually at Naropa University almost 20 years ago, where he was part of a deep ecology conference with the most eclectic group of scientists from all over the place. And, and I was just completely taken by his brilliance. Um, and so speak to us a little bit about your relationship to Francisco and um, how he influenced you and how his brilliance and dare we say genius really um, in so many ways set the trajectory for, for this deep investigation of mind. Mm. Yeah, well, um, the first time I, I met Francisco, I was, I was kind of looking for a, a balance between some, uh, uh, my quest for meaning in life and, and also my background as a scientist. And I, so I was, do, I was enrolled in this um, cognitive neuroscience program. And, and I, I um, I remember like uh, taking his class and uh, and when I, I at the end of the class I realized okay that, that's exactly what I was looking for so for so many so many years so it was really a uh, really a kind of love at first sight kind of experience when I realized oh he's, he's articulating so well all the the yeah the type of question question I'm interested to to pursue so I was really fortunate to 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 spend time with him and um, so I, it's hard to, to summarize in a couple of minutes um, all the impact he had, but um, what was I think extraordinary for, I think it was, it was not only a, a very extremely brilliant scientist, but also he was trained as a philosopher yeah, and also as a practitioner. And I think he was also, uh, he was a student of uh, Shogar Trumpa and, and also then um, um, 
bientôt Golian. Um, and so, so that's making some, someone really, um, really the, the, the first of his type to try to, to create these bridges between um, meditation and, and science. And, and to my, to my uh, so far, I think he is the one which I think managed to integrate in the most in the most the most complex way, the relationship, the nature of the relationship between the two, in a way that is not too naive. So what I mean by naive is not a way, but in a way that kind of try to respect the 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 contribution and the singularity of each perspective yeah. when you study uh, consciousness. Um, what what struck me is that he tried to to develop a certain a new research avenue that he labeled neurophenomenology right. which was uh, trying to articulate the nature of the relationship between uh, a first person exploration of consciousness and a, a third person neuroscientific exploration of, of 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 the of the mind of brain and and what is really unique is i think two two key points first he has a um, uh, a very strong interest for epistemology, and I could I could uh, I could develop that in a second. But it, it somehow it, it has to, the same type of emphasis that in meditation you have on wisdom. It's really yeah. try to understand that what is the nature of knowledge, what is the where, where does it start, and 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 that led him to really give primacy to experience uh, as a starting point of everything. Uh, and and he, and then he tried to articulate that. That kind of ontological start of experience with the scientific exploration and, and trying to articulate um, a research program that was both rigorous but without falling in some simple trap which would be like a, a basic naive reductionism in science and and um, so I can I can elaborate on that if you want but it was really trying to 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 find a way to keep the the richness and the singularity of each perspective, yeah. the perspective of the first person, the perspective of the third person, without any form of hegemony of one and the other. And I think that's really unique uh, because in, in many of the dialogue uh, that I, I, I witness between uh, contemplative and neuroscientists, often there, it's true that there, there is a, um, you, you, can, you can see that, 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 that there is a, some, somehow, even if people are respecting the, the contemplative, there is, See the sense that of, of a, that ultimately that that's what's you know it's more science going to teach what what's what's uh, what meditation is all about and and it's actually quite hard to to really pin down why why is it so important to to keep um, to keep to keep the uh, a, pr a primary role to experience uh, and so that that was the first uh, kind of strong um, thing I got from him and. Then also, at, at the person, it was quite unique. I think it was there is something like that, that was um, something that is hard to to describe. But it was um, uh, it was passion. He had so much passion. Yeah, he had passion, and and, and yeah. every every experience actually. What was fascinating at any single experience was for him an opportunity to both ex explore that as a scientist, yeah, and yeah. as a practitioner. And just to give you one example, what was. Sure. So when I arrived in, uh, in his lab, he told me, so for first I did my, my, I did my military services um, as a researcher in Berkeley for a year and a half. And he said, when I came back, he told me, okay, you can do your PhD, 
And I say, he told me, listen, Antoine, you have, have a 50% chance to, to make it uh, within the next three months. So you need to bet that I will, I, I'm on the waiting list of a, of a liver for a liver transplant. And, uh, and so you, you know, you need to, to take the risk for, to do that. And, and uh, ultimately he got, he got, he got, uh, he got the, the liver transplant. And what was extraordinary is that uh, doing liver, liver transplant as a practitioner, you know, he was somehow the, the anesthesia didn't work. And, and he's ended up being aware of, of the, of the operation uh, while being totally anesthetized, anesthetized. And, and he, and he recognized, and it was for him, it, 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 he, he wrote an article, a scientific article, it actually after it. And it was also a unique opportunity to practice. And he said that that's where he really, he understood really the, 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 the importance of, of, say, practice like nature of mind and, and how it's totally managed to change his relationship to that experience. And, 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 he, and he got some profound insight through that experience. And it was for me, that's a great example to, to see him as a neuroscientist trying to all the time asking the question, okay, what's the nature of the of the mind, both as a first person and as a physiological process, and and all all his work was extremely coherent, and and you can really see that he was a livid inquiry. So I can stop here, but it's uh, no, no, it's beautiful. I mean, so many beautiful topics right off the bat. You know, obviously articulated in one of his most famous books, um, the MIT Press. I remember it so well. I, I waited for it with bated breath and I devoured it, you know, embodied mind, embodied mind, um, that there is in fact, uh, every, every dimension of consciousness mind is, has a, um, a kind of somatic correlate, whether it's gross or subtle. But I wanted to come back, you, you hit on some really lovely things here, Antoine. And I remember this very well, actually, during the Deep Ecology Conference, that during a presentation, in fact, on classic phenomenology in that conference, um, I remember at the end, Francisco very politely um, challenged the presenter and said, you know, phenomenology itself is fantastic as a kind of philosophical system, but it doesn't have a praxis. It doesn't have a transformational methodology. And so I found it so fascinating that a couple of years later, in fact, uh, when the first time I came across it was in the Journal of Consciousness Studies when he first introduced this now standard term neurophenomenology. And since then, I mean, that's really one of the, the templates of all the, the, the running research, all the imaging that takes place. Like when I was in the scanner, I'm, I'm having certain experiences and, and you guys are in the lab seeing what's actually happening. What are the signatures in my brain um, that mark that? And so the one thing I, I wanted to unpack with you a little bit more, which I think is so important about what you said is uh, Francisco's brilliance and humility to not reduce one discipline to the other. Uh, you, you know, you use the word hegemony or, or supremacy or dominance. There's this, <clears throat> you know, kind of almost classic egoic default to try to use one discipline, whether it's science or con uh, the contemplative traditions to, you know, which has more explanatory power and, and therefore very easy to slip into um, these kind of absolutistic approaches that, oh, you know, the mystics are simply saying this from a scientific point of view, and there you reduce everything to science. Or conversely, oh, the scientists are really just saying this, and then you reduce everything to, um, you know, contemplative kind of uh, trajectories. And so 
to me, I think that's the great gift of, of what he has done, this, this kind of balance of what obviously you in his footsteps continue to do, this very important legacy of honoring both the first person and the third person. Um, but, you know, as, as brilliant as this all is, um, Antoine, I also want to explore with you, um, you know, this is kind of the promise of this kind of work. Um, let's let's continue more with the promise and then also the peril, um, because in fact, you know, I mean, that's one of the things we're talking about. The peril is to reduce one to the other. The promise is to see and honor the respective differences and the contributions that come from both sides. So when you look at this, you know, you're, you are uniquely situated as a um, practitioner of both these tracks. What do you see both in your own experience and in your work, in fact, as the promise and peril of neurophenomenology, um, of, of this kind of approach to mind um, and reality, actually? Well, it's, it's uh, there are probably multiple uh, ways to, to answer these questions. At least in three domains, you could say like uh, basic knowledge, in, in a way, neuroscientific knowledge and knowledge in general. Uh, you could say also clinical knowledge, maybe, uh, or more related to the question of, of uh, yeah, really of suffering. Um, and and then maybe then uh, um, more almost uh, maybe more something more uh, almost ethical also. So mm. maybe I could try to to uh, explain that uh, a little bit. Now there are two ways to do it. My, either I could I could give I could start by the neuroscientific one, and, and that may be a little bit. Um, uh, Complex, but let, let me start by the more ethical one. A very okay. simple. One. Okay. Just because it's 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 just happened to me recently, and it's it's really moved me because I, I it was a very clear uh, illustration of exactly the ethical consequences of that. Uh, is that so? I was um, last week. I was invited to a, a meeting online for uh, uh, for um, what's called humanist humanistic medicine. Okay. And uh, so, which is a tendency now to to move medicine more into a field that is more uh, um, uh, take more experience, um, first person first person experience, and and uh, and also uh, into consideration. And one consequence is what, what was great is that at our meeting, so there was six person invited to the, that that round table. They invited one patient, and and so it was. So we are, we were like five experts on that topic and one patient, mm. and and I found it really interesting that he. So it was around the role of meditation in medicine, but they, but the, the fact that you use a, a patient was really say something. He said something very profound about the way other patient meditation changed his experience. Oh. I'm going to make the connection to to what what we just discussed. Sure. The thing say what was great is that I I sense that there was a shift to meditation in the way I feel the way that the the medical doctor was also practicing meditation was treating me and how me I was seeing myself as a, a participant to the treatment. So say differently in one case 
in one extreme case, the medical doctor will just see the patient as pretty much an object with like a cancer, like a disease, a cancer process, and that you will, and then you will hear to get, receive certain drugs, and this drug will work on this particular mechanism, and this is it. And the other way, which is much more complex, which is acknowledging that there are multiple sources of knowledge to a, to a situation, and you can of course treat a patient with cancer with a specific drugs, which work in a specific area. But you could also treat it as certain aspect of the disease, which is how, as an organism, as an agent, the person is experiencing that disease. Whether it has, it has anxiety, distress, uh, the, you know, uh, all the comorbidities that, which come with the disease, which are much more mental. And the patient say that for him it was it was really empowering to to be treated. That, that he felt much more by, by someone who has much first much more empathy with with his condition, treating him as a as a person, and also empowering him with a, a capacity to 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 be part of the treatment itself. Yeah, and so that's I think a great example to I think articulate what is at stake I think with neurofemiology, which is to acknowledge first fundamentally you have different sources of knowledges. Uh, one that and, and, and that which are like third person and one which is actually f f from the first person which is really what it is to be a person and uh now to be a bit more scientific now sure sure uh, you could see that there is almost like a, a kind of a genus face you could yep. somehow you if you want to study consciousness you need to acknowledge that it has really these two faces two modes of donation what is this which is a first person givenness that no matter how you're going to explain the the pro, uh, the process, it's always going to be here. You're not going to reduce. So I explain to you everything from your brain. You, you, um, Andrew will still be Andrew experiencing that. Okay. So so it's 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 really a, a, just a ontologically different. And but there there is um, what is interesting with with that is that it is also. Um, First, from a so so that that's just to say that there is an articulation of the of that, that two form of knowledge. Yeah, that um, can then um, first, if you if you know, if I go through the three domain I described for scientifically, one idea of Francisco is that you need to train pragmatically someone consciousness to describe itself or to that that this type of process that we call consciousness, if it's from uh, uh, someone who have uh, some training in in, in with a uh, contemplative training, for instance, he has a much better capacity to uh, reflexively be aware of some aspect of his own mind that are all, all, that that that's that's uh, which are fundamentally interesting to to then constrain to the interpretation and the identification of certain third person processes. So. If you want to take the example of the of the, this patient, if you go into into the science of consciousness, you could also take the participant as a collaborator to in the discovery of of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you can, if you are the MD, you can take the the the, the patient as part of the, the the treatment itself. You see, and so that that's really the the, the this type of vision is. Um, Give equal importance to the to uh, these two modes of donation of consciousness. So I could stop here and unpack it. But if you want that, that also 
at a more fundamental level, scientifically, that correspond also to a certain view of, of, of the neuroscientific theory that view the um, consciousness as more a self-organizing uh, process that are um, so, so yeah, that, 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 that are um, yeah, what, Francisco, um, what Francisco talked about is autopoiesis, right? I mean, wasn't yes, that? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, yeah, and there are no multiple modern way to talk about it, but they, they, that's congruent with a view of, of cognition, which is more self, uh, more constructivist. When you, uh, reality and perception are um, um, co-emerge from the, the, the sensory coupling or motor interaction that an agent has with the world. And so in that sense, if you go a little bit more deeper in this dialogue, you could see that what we take as something, uh, what we call the third person or the, the, the reality of science is something actually that is much more uh, uh, flexible or co-construct that what we initially Yes. So that that's a more more a more advanced or third level of neurofeno that is that it has potentially a, a, through that engagement with experience and investigation a way to maybe deconstruct some of the the naive view to do science and to perceive a scientific object. I think I I, I love to I, yeah Francisco uh, Francisco see you you've merged with his mind I just called you Francisco. So Antoine, I would love to go further in, in this arena because this is, a, this is actually quite a, a deep fascination of mine, uh, my own. And it also connects, you know, in, in this particular platform, what we do is we use the medium of the dream hmm. um, as a way to uh, explore the nature of mind and reality. And in one of the ways we do that, you know, I think you know um, in the Buddhist tradition, they use the dream as what they call the double delusion or the example dream, you know, to, in a way to really study the creative power of the mind. Um, and I think what you're just saying, let's, let's go up uh, this ladder for a little bit, because I think it's really important that, you know, most of us in the Western world, we just have this kind of given this axiomatic view that there is this world independent of us. We parachute into it at birth. We leave it at death solid, lasting, independent, objective, dualistic. Well, I think both from a neuroscientific point of view and certainly from a contemplative point of view, that's just a belief system. And so when you're talking about this, please go further about, yeah. about the co-creative, the co-emergent qualities about how, and you know, in my language, it's not so much that we grow into a pre-existing world, but we grow with a no, world. Yeah, exactly, you go, exactly, that's much, thank you for, it's much more precise. Um, so, so um, let me give you one, one construct that, that, that I, on which we've been working in, a, in our team in Lyon that, that's tried to, to bring into ordinary cognitive science some of these ideas. Um, so we, we are, we are very interested in um, the notion of uh, subjective realism that you just mentioned. Subjective is, realism, yeah. Yeah. How much that? How, how does how does it work? That you know, when you you look at visual perception, for instance, we know that on the retina you just have this this constant just this uh, visual signal, uh, and when you move there, that everything is changing. Yet you 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 perceive things when you move your head are, are being stable and and solid. So somehow one one of the beauty of of 
our um, mind brain is that it, it, it has a capacity to, 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 to build this kind of very stable reality. Mm -hmm. Now, and one, one, um, one um, area that we've been exploring is the capacity to intentionally suspend some of, of, uh, of these processes. Now, um, to do it on perception is, is a bit more advanced. But, uh, uh, and, and Dream is a great example to discuss that. But I just want to give highlight one or two ex examples on where, where this, this type of process are explored in the literature. So um, one thing that we've been doing, for, to give you an example, is, is to, to look at the uh, uh, how when you see an image, for instance, um, you, you're walking on the, on the streets and you see an ad. And often the ads and the commercials are really designed to, to, um, um, to capture your mind and to, 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 to trigger this kind of grasping mind that is, in, at least in, in, in contemplative tradition, a source of suffering. And, and we work with a, with a, a PhD student, Constanza Paquedano, who is back in Chile, on that, on that, that regulation of subjective realism by, by meditation training. And so, uh, during a PhD, she, she looked at uh, paradigms that look at food images. And we, we look at, um, um, uh, we brought people to the lab and asked them for their food preferences. And we present them either like food that are neutral or food that I really like. And we, yep. we got their, their first person rating of it. And then uh, we did a, a we replicate a, a paradigm that already showed the following. It was a work from the group of uh, um, um, uh, from involving uh, um, Laurie Barcelou, and and uh, it's uh, it's uh, looking at the manipulation and um, uh, Papiers and Barcelou. They look at the, uh, how much you can uh, either immerse yourself in a visual image like a food image. So you can, you can imagine, for instance, uh, your favorite uh, cheesecake, okay? And you just present this cheesecake. Now, so we all know that there is no cheesecake, right? But the interesting part is that if you really immerse into it and to the point that it feels real, yeah. what's really happened a lot is that, that you people will start typically to report that they start to salivate. And so, we, we thought it was an, a really nice way to almost operationalize this very intimate feeling of subjective realism. And so we did a task when there was too manipulation. Either there was doing what I just described, immerse, immersing oneself into a food image to the point that you feel that salivation. And then the person was doing a task, which was uh, what we call in, in psychology an approach avoiding those tasks approach avoidance task approach avoidance yeah so they just see the same image again but they were more in the background and and uh, and uh, in the foreground you get a cue that you either it could be a square or a circle and you your task was to press in one hand when it was a, a circle and on, on, on uh, and you press on the other end when it was a square it wasn't on the on the, on the images okay the interesting thing is that you could, you could uh, then once you press it, the, the image could either come toward you or, uh -huh. or going away from you. So it has this notion of 
uh, it creates an habit of either uh, an approach or avoidance habits. Yeah. Which is, you know, as you know, in meditation, it's so important. That's really this movement of the mind to, to bring it to you or to avoid. And we found that um, what, what is known in the literature is that when you do this type of manipulation, the, the work of, of, uh, of Papiers and Barcelou, that you, you create a, bi a bias, such as when you, you have to uh, avoid, press to the cue that is leading to an avoidance, and you really like the image, you have a motor response that is a little bit longer because in your brain there is kind of a conflict in your mind that you, you need to press a button that leads to avoidance, but you really like the cheesecake. And so you can behaviorally then subtract a condition when you, you know, when you approach and avoid something you like, you dislike, and you, you, you can have a behavioral measure of this biased, cognitive bias that is induced by the subjective realism. And what was really cool is that um, we inspired and we found that um, um, the more people were immersed in the food before, the more um, you had, a, first, you have, the more you had a salivation after it. So you can really see that you know, the mind can trigger something mental, can trigger something physiological. And that also then will, will increase the bias that you have behaviorally. So that was a great, almost description of how something purely mental can impact the body and then impact behavior later on. And, and the more people were describing that this sense of tickiness in the mind, the more you could see the bias. And then interestingly, when we did a, another condition, when we learned to be mindful and just observe things as just being mental, right. look at emotion as just being an emotion, we, we saw that this bias didn't appear. So it was, I think, a really nice, and then we, we, we just saw EEG manipulation, like electroencephalography, showing that the, the that there was a, this bias for food was uh, related to um, an early um, uh, brain potential that, that showed that there was already a real reallocation of attention that was facilitating this bias. So what I really like with this paradigm, you can almost tell a, like a, a Dharma, Dharma story about, about how um, um, the engagement that you have mentally with the world uh, that, that then, then create habits and, and, um, and then how mindfulness could potentially uh, help to downregulate some of these habits or deautomatize some of the brain. Exactly. Now, what was the, so we, we, we discussed this notion in terms of, of it's sometimes called cognitive fusion in the literature, or, or when you are subjective realism, how you fuse with with perception, and and so meditation can be viewed as a as a, as a mechanism to derify or, or, or decenter from that. Absolutely. And and in the clinical literature, what is really fascinating is that 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 construct of decentering or cognitive diffusion or derification is in in a very recent study from the group of Zinal Ziegel in, in Toronto one of the best predictor of prevention in relapse in depression. Oh, wow. So you can really see that that, that construct of, of that, that what we're talking here is not some, you know, very abstract philosophical uh, notions. It has very, first you can track down that with other process in, in the brain and behavior. And it has also very important clinical implication 
therapeutic implications. This is so fascinating. Uh, so many thoughts come to mind here, Antoine. It, uh, it's just, it's really fantastic. I wanna, let's go deep with this. Uh, this. This can take us to some really interesting things. So what came to mind here, oh my gosh, was um, the bias. Let's take this as deep as we possibly can. Um, I think that, that perhaps my view on what you're saying is that this, this type of bias that you're talking about is still, is still epiphenomenal to an actual more foundational bias, which is in fact, um, and this is what I'd like to talk to you about, which, which is the unconscious bias of the egoic structure mm. for duality itself, mm. for ontology itself, that fundamentally that, that's, the, that's the fundamental bias to, to somehow think that there's something out there to begin with. So that's ground zero, so to speak which we don't like ground zero. We want ground one or something. We want ground, yeah, no, yeah, we don't right. want the emptiness. So, so can you in fact extrapolate back exactly this type of research to explore? In, in fact, I would love to talk to you about the possibility, and I have some ideas about this, design structures um, uh, for studies to look at the bias for ontology itself, for the, the, the fundamental bias for duality itself. And so what came to mind around this, I love what you said about the study of marketing and advertising. I, I think you can take this again along these lines to very foundational tenets. And, and I have to um, share my bias here. So this is full disclosure, this is my bias. And I have to be a little careful here because this may be revelatory of my um, kind of absolutistic approaches to spiritual, what I playfully now refer to Antoine as a kind of spiritual reductionism where I think if you take a very close look at the nature of mind and reality, you can in fact carefully, that's the imperative word, reduce the vast complex display, um, the multitudinous display of the world to fundamental spiritual tenets. And I think there's tremendous power in that. Um, this, this is healthy reductionism that reduces things to kind of its fundamental kind of generative impulses. And so what came to mind here is on one level, the, the, the fundamental advertisement is for form itself, the marketing for, for existence itself, that that drives the entire um, kind of um, purchasing agenda, which then constitutes the entirety of our life, of which what you're talking about is just an expression of this more foundational bias for existence itself. And so um, I can pause and come up for air on that. There are several ways I can rephrase that. But... Um, do you think that that, that kind of um, extrapolation is valid? And in fact, do you think there would be a way to construct some kind of studies that could in fact unearth this e even deeper underlying bias for duality itself? Well, it's, it's a, well, as you know, we, I, mean, I mean, that's one of my, uh, my main, uh, my, my uh, personal research question. I mean, I really like this, uh, these topics. And I, um, I felt really fortunate that I, I've, I've been able to, to pursue it because in, you know, in academia, uh, I, I, talking about bias, I think, could you imagine to go to a you know, funding agency to, 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 just, to, just to sell this idea of, of non-duality and to study it? Because that's a fundamental issue that if people don't have a personal contemplative interest for that, it's very hard to understand the, the meaning of it, and you you sound immediately very new agey and so on. But exactly. anyway, through I was great that in in Richard Davidson's lab I had this opportunity, and then in in um, actually when I came back to Europe, 
I was also very fortunate um, to, to get a, um, a, a, um, a very comfortable grant, European grant, to support to do research on mindfulness. And then I, I gave myself the opportunity, the, the right to study that, that topics. Um, so it was not in, in the initial grant, but then I, I took it. Uh, and so to study like more like this, this non-dual um, um, topics. And so we, we, we have a, a very interesting paper in um, manuscript in, in, um, uh, that we are, which has been submitted recently. And that, that goes a little bit in that direction. So maybe I, let me try to, to explain the topics. And it's still Please. a work under progress. But I, I agree that with you, with what you just said, that, that's, uh, that I think is a fundamental question. And it's, it's very hard to, to, to investigate for many reasons. One, to find the right participant, because um, it, it, it's... Is very, there's probably many layers to 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 understand many layers to to of realization and uh, and it's difficult to find the right participant. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, um, one one recent area of research, I mean, one research that, that might be very useful for that is to the study of, of physical pain. And uh, so maybe let me let me. Um, Wait, so did you say you said physical brain? Is that what you said? Physical no, brain. Sorry, physical. Pain. Oh, physical pain. Thank pain. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the beauty of, of physical pain is that you you can you can address many questions. One one is um, I mean the question of, of uh, physical suffering. Yeah. And no, sorry, like mental suffering or dukkha. So you can really go at that question very deeply, and and it has also something that is can be operationalized nicely in neuroscience because you we know quite a lot about the some of the pathway of pain. And that's something you can manipulate quite nicely. So uh, in medicine and now, and then in, in, uh, in, um, uh, in Lyon, we, we've been exploring that questions. And um, uh, let's say what one, um, maybe let me just describe what one, um, uh, let's say, Maybe I should not. I will not go focus too much on the brain tonight. Okay. Uh, maybe just, but, but maybe just describe the some of the behavior finding and some of the uh, quite, but particularly the qualitative finding. Okay. So we've done a task that try to um, get at that notion of the of the dual second arrow of pain yep. meditation. So yep. just for you know this idea that um, uh, as the historical Buddha said, you, you have. You, suffer, you, you have twice of suffering. So first, you have the first arrow, which is a sensory um, uh, form of sensory um, sensory pain, mm -hmm. and then you you have a more mental one, which is related to um, um, how you relate to the pain. How do relate to pain? The, the anticipatory anxieties, maybe the the frustration about the pain, the fact that the, you fear that the pain will last for too long, the, the um, all the mental factors that are that are amplifying the pain, and and what sometimes in psychology we call pain catastrophizing. So some people pain have a, catastrophizing absolutely. So there is a scale. This is called the pain catastrophizing scales. Yeah, it is really measuring our bias. Talking about bias our tendency to, to naturally relate to pain in a way that is kept, that where you're catastrophizing pain. 
So patients who are suffering from chronic pain typically often have a very high score on this one. Hmm. So one, so uh, first we, we brought long-term practitioners, people who have done like you a three-year retreat in the in the Tibet Buddhist tradition. Uh, you, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Mahamudra adoption. Yep. And um, they came to the lab and uh, and they did a, a, a novel pain paradigms when we tried to um, manipulate some of this second hour of pain. So we tried to mani manipulate in two ways. First, by uh, looking at, uh, if you want, the fear aspect of, of pain. So we, yeah. we give a little cue in the, so they got the, the pain, the sensory aspect was, was triggered by a thermode that you would put on the wrist. Uh huh. Okay. I wore, I wore those when I was in your yeah, lab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I wore that. Yeah. Yes, we did it. Oh, yeah, actually, I, let me. Be, after that, I could, I could, I could record to the reader what what we found with your study, if you want. Yeah. And then I, I will explain what we replicate here. So, you you put some uh, a, a thermal pain on the wrist, which is like yep. When you put hot tap water on hot water on it, it's kind of very acute, acute uh, and pleasant acute sensation. Yep. And and um, so that's how the, the how we operationalize the suffering. Uh, sorry, the pain. And then we, we we manipulate the second arrow in two ways. First, we 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 tell to the participant when they they will get the pain or not. So when it will be warm or hot. So you have this tendency to of uh, you know anxiety or not. And the first one and the second one we we. Um, Compared to medicine, we had two style, two type of stimulus. In medicine, you we had like a 10 second stimu stimulus, and here we had either a short one of eight seconds or a very long one of 16 seconds. Mm -hmm. And and this like with the idea that when you start to have a, a when you really you know that it's going to be a long one, it's much more uncomfortable because that's where you the, the, that's where the, the the monkey mind start to kick kick in, and and you start to say. You know, uh, oh God, it's gonna. How long it's gonna last? And so, right. and so, we 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 try to manipulate th that 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 duration, and and at some point early on, we we give a little cue to a participant that it's gonna last for longer or not, and so we we really try to 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 create this uh, this uh, keep uh, this monkey mind uh, like going, and and um, and so what 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 we found is that. Essentially, we, first we replicate what we found in, in the study with you. Yeah. And that is in that that expert meditator has a tendency to um, experience the same level of intensity, but with almost less unpleasantness. So, so they, it's they are much less bothered by that. So that, that replicate that, that, that we found that also in medicine. But the interesting part here is that we we found that um, the uh, um, the longer, during the long pain itself, in particular, the experts were um, uh, the sensory decoupling between the sensory yeah. and affected was yes. was much more salient during the long one for experts. It's yeah. to be, where the novices it was much more amplified, and uh, that was that the first finding, and then also that was typically predicted by the level of pain catastrophizing. So expert was very low in pain catastrophizing yeah. scales, but novices were much, much, much higher. And, and so what we found is that the, um, when the pain was long, um, expert in particular 
it was, if anything, it, it didn't bother them at all to be in the long one. When the novices we really amplify the, 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 uh, the, the sensory and uh, decrease the sensory uncoupling. So that was a good manipulation to show that for an untrained mind, having this extra challenge really creates a space for, for the second arrow of pain. Absolutely. And now, another novelty compared to Madison is that we, we have them to either do a state of um, avoidance, so they had to count numbers during the task, or to be open to pain and to just rest into the experience of pain. And we found that both groups actually benefit from that. So the avoiding, avoiding pain compared to opening to pain reduces unpleasantness for both groups. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the last interesting finding that we had is that compared to our prediction, we did not, we found a main effect of group, okay? But no, if we find a main effect of group, so experts were less unpleasantness than novices, we found a, a state manipulation. So both groups find an effect of lower pain, lower unpleasantness in mindfulness versus avoidance. But compared to what we found in Madison's, we did not find a group by state uh, in, um, interaction. So uh, during mindfulness, expert or, or open monitoring the, or open presence, experts were not better at novices compared to avoidance. Uh -huh. And we were quite surprised by that. And <coughs> so what, one, one, um, one possibility that was actually quite interesting was, was that the reason we didn't find a state effect for experts, uh -huh. we thought that maybe related to the fact that, and I would love to get your input on this as a practitioner, is that while when you do this, this open presence, which has this notion of uh, you know same uh, um, same taste kind of flavor to yep. every experience. Yeah, it's not something that you switch it on and off. You know, yep. once you're here, you you got it, and it's not when you. It's not because we ask them to come back to a, an avoidance state that suddenly you're going to be this quality of the mind will disappear. So what we test is whether that was true, and we will look at and so every block of pain participant could either start with a. Uh, avoidance, then uh, open presence, uh -huh. or the reverse, starting by open presence and then avoidance. Uh -huh. Okay, and we look whether there was an order effect uh, on the pain rating of unpleasantness. And when we took into account the order effect in that particular case, we replicate the finding from Madison and find that indeed there was a group by state uh, interaction where. The experts were uh, better at at um, uh, show a le less unpleasantness uh, in open presence compared to uh, avoidance only when you started first by the block of avoidance and then going to yes. open presence. That's interesting. So when you start by open presence and you go then to avoidance, it didn't matter. You will still find it un un unpleasant. And I found that was a very fascinating uh, observation that. Really found really nicely articulate the the the, the expertise and how um, the state actually can merge into daily life. So yeah, that's kind of one observation, and then I have another part of the story. So uh, this is all of it is so incredibly interesting, um, Antoine. Uh, I want to talk a little bit. You, you pinged on a couple terms here that I want to return to because 
I, I want to um, portray to our listeners the, the practicality, the, the applicability of this type of work and, and how, in fact, as a meditator, because in a certain way you're, you're, you're intimating, you're suggesting this, but I want to be a little bit more specific because I think it will help people understand the processes and, and therefore the power if we can bring these normally unconscious processes into the light of our awareness through, in fact, things like meditation, we can, in fact, make these studies unbelievably practical that will radically transform the way we relate to pain. And so uh, what I want to return to, you mentioned two things, deeply connected, um, de-automatization and uh, what you call sensory, or what I... Uncoupling, uncoupling, uncoupling. Yeah, or functional decoupling. And so yeah. let's yeah. talk about both of those because here's my riff on this and, and, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. To me, it seems um, that so much of our suffering comes about by this kind of default mode network that, that is based largely on these unconscious um, automatic processes. And in a very real way, we're, we're automatons we're running on kind of automatic ignorance. And I think that automatic ignorance, and this is what I wanna to talk to you about a little bit later, is something that one can study um, at very deeper levels, you know, I wanna to return to this notion of non-duality. But to me, what I notice when I engage in meditation, and just like with the two arrows thing, through the process of meditation, meditation um, decelerates. So I think there's a, there's a bit of a logic here. So when you engage in meditation, you you deconstruct the pain, I should say the suffering. Let's let's be careful here. You deconstruct the suffering mm -hmm. by deautomatizing the inappropriate relationship to pain. Exactly. That in itself is actually brought about by deceleration. So I have this kind of tripartite alliterative thing. To deconstruct is to deautomatize, is to decelerate. And then by decelerating, what are you doing? You're, you're functionally decoupling. You actually have the ability to slow down and realize you do not need to run on automatic ignorance. You can actually see the space between things. You can actually see that you have a choice. And, and you know, at this point, most of us don't feel like we have that choice just because the power of habituation is so powerful that, that our habits decide for us, our habits think for us, they hurl us into these um, automatic processes that bring about so much suffering. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I, I think that this is the, the genius of the meditative um, tool, so to speak, is that it slows us down, it allows us to see these processes that are otherwise so fast that we just get completely sucked into them. And then, you know, the result of that is, is, is so much of our unnecessary suffering in the world. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, it's, it's um, and uh, you're totally summarizing exactly the type of, of uh, type of framework or type of story we try to, uh, to characterize and measure. Uh, now, I want to come back to, uh, to, to, to two points. Okay. For, for, for first, uh, I will come back to the study on pain. Okay. Uh, and, and because I know that you have an interest in non-duality, so I, I will... I will come back to that on that topic in a, in a second. Okay. But before that, I want to maybe uh, illustrate what you mean, what you talk about in terms of deceleration okay. by, uh, with a, a paradigm that we, we ran a couple of years ago 
with a, a co colleague of, of mine, Alex Larter, doing a study with Richard Davidson in Madison. So we did a, um, a study in uh, inside meditation, uh, pre and post three months retreat. And we look at a, a paradigm that is called uh, attention blink paradigms. Attention on blink, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's yep. really about deceleration. So it's really nicely yep. exactly what you described. It's really about, about uh, presenting very quickly uh, <clears throat> a stream of letters and embedded in the letters two, two numbers, which are the, the, your targets. Yep. You have to look at, you, you need to uh, report for the participant these two numbers. Sometimes they call it T1 and T2. Now, what is found in, in, uh, in psychology is that when the two numbers, the T1 and T2, are uh, far apart, so around above 500 milliseconds. Yeah, <clears throat> you can easily be aware of both of them. Okay, yep. but when you start to to go around 250, at the soft spot, that suddenly you you, you yeah. exactly you can't yep. you can't see them anymore. Yeah, flicker, and, flick, what they call? Oh, flick, yeah, yeah. Flick, so, so the, yeah, so the mind the mind is get trapped by the first one. Yeah, you can ha ha! I found the first number, and then boom, you're not aware of the second one. And the, there are multiple theories to account for that, but the most common one is that it reflects the bottleneck, bottleneck nature of attentional resources. Uh, meaning that yeah. bottleneck, the bottleneck of attentional resources, meaning yeah. that you, we have a limited amount of resources of attention. So if everything goes into the first one, yeah. then for some, for some times, and, and, and that's you, there is, uh, all the, the the global workspace of attention, if you want, of consciousness, is taken into into the processing of the first one, and then any kind of uh, novel information for a very brief amount of time can't access yeah. these resources. Is that, yeah. that's sometimes called a winner take whole mechanism in the brain. Yeah. So once uh, one another, so when there is what's called a, a ignition, so what can for some theory, what consciousness is all about is igniting, so amplifying. So did you, I'm sorry, did you say ignition? Ignition, yes. Ignition. Ignition of a very small event, small and no event, yep. say in that case, a visual target, yep. has suddenly access to the whole brain, the billions of neurons are suddenly uh, um, solicited to be part of that moment of awareness. But what's happening that other, other small event can't access to this, this this kind of global workspace and and so that will account for why you don't you don't um miss the second one so practically what we found is that um after three months of retreat the idea that by cultivating this this bare awareness so that that just look at things as they are without being taken away you 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 reduce the sec the 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 T2, the, 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 the attention blink. So you are more able to, to watch uh, both uh, targets. So that's really, I think, beautifully, I mean, it, it illustrates very well what you just described. Now, the, the, what is difficult in science is to, to <laughs> within one experiment, to, to bring right. together all this process. So if you want, with a study we did, we, we did with, uh, with, with Constanza, we tried to look at really at this notion of deautomatization. With Spain, we're looking really at this notion of uncoupling. With Eileen, it was more this notion of, of, of uh, attention, uh, optimization of attention resources. But 
but together you, you could speculate that that match well with what you just described. It, it, it's brilliant. And, and actually one very immediate application, you know, as a clinician, when I was delivering anesthetics, you know, I'm giving um, shots to all my patients. I often use this process of a bottleneck of attentional resources by what I refer to playfully these days is, and again, it's a way of extrapolating this fundamental principle to a, um, a kind of what I call distraction therapy, where on a very real level, like for instance, when I'm about to deliver an injection in the oral environment, I, 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 you know, I won't tell the patient what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll pinch their lip, I'll grab their lip, I'll squeeze it, I'll shake it. And it has a physiological response, right? Because it floods the gates with all these this stimulation, but it also has a cognitive affective response where you're, there's so much competition going on that when I then deliver the injection, there's no registration of that discomfort. And I, I think you can take that even further and say, again, I love um, if we're careful to extrapolate these sorts of things. This is actually part of what uh, Laka Rinpoche talks about is on a spiritual level is active laziness. This, uh, and again, now I'm switching completely different boats, you know, that on a very real level, so much of our lives, uh, Antoine, is an incredibly sophisticated avoidance strategy driven by these unconscious um, impulses to avoid fear, to avoid pain. And basically the entire, and again, this is why I like the spiritual reductionism thing, because you can, you can suss things down to this, that take a very close look at your life, slow down, decelerate, deautomatize, deconstruct, and you'll start to see that so much of what we do in our so-called conscious lives are driven by these profound unconscious avoidance strategies to avoid, uh, avoid the truth of pain, fear, and more deeply, and this is what I want to come back to, we're circumambulating this topic. Most fundamentally, what do we want to avoid? The radical truth of emptiness, the truth of our inherent non-existence. And so, so it all comes, again, before, before, yeah, I mean, great. Let me come back to that, that topic. And before, I can't resist to make a little digression that... Yeah, totally. Uh, it's really fun. But, uh, so I think, I think the, from a therapeutic viewpoint, uh, often I, I wonder whether, whether some aspect, and I'm not an expert in hypnosis, so probably I, I, I apologize if it's incorrect, but sometimes I feel that a lot of the, that the therapeutic of, of hypnosis sometimes is, is try to, to harness the power of the mind to, to be, yeah. to be uh, to seduced by the mind, by mental affect, to, to, to distract it from other things. So it, it has some therapeutic benefits, potentially, because you, as you just, I mean, I, I remember watching a video, which was amazing, when people are, it's a group in, in Liège doing uh, an, uh, surgery. Uh, like very painful surgery with, with hypnosis, yeah. and so it was like I forget exactly the technical term, but they was they had to to rub the nose with some some thing like broken some of the nose with some like something very painful and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the huh? yeah, the continue go ahead yeah yeah no and so so <coughs> this uh, the this therapist was like saying like okay now so the person really loved to do to do skiing so he say oh now imagine you're skiing. And uh, you're going down this very beautiful uh, scenery. Everything is great, nice sun and good snow. And and so and then the person starts to rub the nose, and you could hear that the bones, like you know, like uh, rubbing. And then and then she said, like, oh, now you got a little bump on the of ice, oh, you wow. know. <laughs> and then oh, another bump, another bump, and then a branch. And uh, but you don't feel the pain. You continue. It's great to ski. And wow. and the person was totally fine. 
And I realized that, wow, this is actually a positive aspect of, the, of that function of the mind. Is that it, it's, and, and maybe, as you say, it's an avoidance strategy, but in some contexts, it's, um, it's a big debate. But it, it's, I think that we, we, we tend to favor that strategy. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's come back. Um, okay. So I, I want... the, the data on the on the non-dual. Uh, okay, yeah. okay, quickly. So, yeah, so, so, so here's here's I want I want to in relation to that I, I want to um, this this is going to dovetail back to a couple of things that you talked about that we haven't fully unpacked that I, I now want to target a little bit more because I'm you know it's interesting Antoine as I as I get a little bit older and I start to engage in practices you know kind of heart essence practices, the practices mm. that really have the most impact to me. Mm. The ones I find more more and more interesting as I as I go along my path are in fact these practices on non-duality. And so let's talk a little bit about this because um, in fact maybe we can presage this or preface this with with a couple questions for you. So um, we, we we started talking about this earlier when we were talking about the co-creative aspects, how the world co-emerges with us. So let, let's start there, and then we'll work our way down to, to maybe more foundational tenets. But when someone asks you the question, what is the world, how, how do you respond these days? I mean, what, what, when somebody says, what, what is the world? What, what is out there? How, how do you respond to that question? Well, um... Well, it really, it really depends on, on, on who I have in front of me, you know. Um, okay. So, so well, I, I, I guess for me, there's not, not really, um, well, it's, it's quite a, yeah, it, 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 it's, um, um, in, a, in a nutshell, I mean, for me, there's no, no better way to articulate that type of topic than, the, you know, the Buddhist, um, Notion of of uh, relative and absolute. So so, um, yeah. Go ahead. No. Well. Well. So so, you could uh, you you could um, you you could to totally totally um, um, describe the the if you want a conventional world or intersubjective world of science, for instance. For me, that that's really about uh, the relative truth. Okay, and it's about action, about object, about relations, um, prediction, and so on. And, and that's involved a very complex uh, a conceptual uh, apparatus uh, that we developed. I mean, that, that I didn't go too far into that, but uh, somehow you, you you build up a, a, an internal representation of of what are the what are the cause of of the sensory. Uh, sensory signal that you receive, and that, and 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 through the sensory coupling, you build a representation of a of a reality. So you have a certain model of reality, and 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 so that's on a relative level that's what you could call the world. Uh, but then you have also. So let, let me let me just so I can, I can track some of this because this is this is really great stuff, and um, just so I stay with you. So at that level, before we go deeper. How, how, what, what term do scientists append to that description of reality? Do, do they literally, do they talk about it as, as realism, critical realism? I mean, when scientists talk about that, that level of relating to the world, what, 
what label do they append to that description of reality? Now, well, I mean, I, I guess it's really dependent on who you're talking to. Me, me it's very hard sometimes to, because I, I, um, I was trained both as a scientist uh, and uh, I mean, I've done some philosophy also and, and also a bit of meditation. So, so it's... Um, See, that's why I'm asking you these questions because you, you can walk between all these worlds. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I think that the big, I mean, the big difference is, is whether it's very important to know when you talk about ontology or when you talk about more um, experience. And, and soft, often I, and I, I really learn a lot from someone like Michel Bitbol, who is um, yeah, yeah. one of yeah. my uh, yeah. philosophical mentor. And he's, um, um, when, you, when you start to, 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 to no, you're not clear about the distinction and you, you, and you, you just discuss, when you focus too much on the ontology, that's where you, you, you can start to see tension and paradox and, and but, but when you, you, you stay more with the, the method or the epistemology, and you just talk about the experience of phenomena and, and you just, then, then it's, it's, very, it's very clear. It's, it's, not, it's not that complicated. Uh, so, uh, so to come back to your question, what, what's... Uh, can, I, can I ask you something right there? Yes. Because again, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is a hornet's nest of topics, um, but I find it so helpful to try to tease out um, these strands because to me they're, again, they may seem initially somewhat like, well, who cares? Isn't it just mere philosophy? Oh, I don't think so at all. No, I, I think just like with your studies on pain, these types of discussions can lead to the, the deepest alleviation of suffering and pain because yeah. you know I think this is what it all comes down to again. So let me ask, let me rephrase the question in this way based on what you just said, Antoine. And I realize the, the, the difficulty of these questions. Um, you know, even the way you ask the question sends the mind in certain directions. But along these lines, is it even fair to say that there is ontology? Um, you know, because there's, yeah, there's yeah, this exactly. kind of... Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's where you... Um, I, I, I think uh, that, that's where, where, where it's really at the end... Um, it depends on, again on how you de define ontology, and that's why I think the, the virtue of, of having this type of training is that you you can have ontology, but you can have loose ontology that are complex. Loose ontology, yeah. But yeah. So that's my own word. I don't know whether, but it's more like to say that you know, when I'm with, um, if I have to to speak about science, you, yeah, okay, practically you can you can just talk about these things. The 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 the, the risk is that when people are lost into this, I mean as. I lost in to take them too seriously, and that, and that's often when you do science, we know that uh, what is a scientific that that what we saw, a lot of things that we talk are scientific objects, and therefore they're just like theory construct. But when well, just to be very pragmatical, well, sure. it's, it's always fascinating to me uh, how some of the finding we we got in our study with experts was was portrayed by journalists. And, and and then reified by by the public. Uh -huh. it, it's just it's just sometimes a yeah it's um, yeah when, when you you um, yeah uh, I try to give you an example like uh, yeah I mean one one of the very personal story I got is that I was. 
I was, uh, there was at some point uh, an observation that well, there was a pilot study in Richie's lab about as, but they tried to look at an experts doing just before meeting with Zorinas on brain asymmetry. He brain, just, brain, so, brain asymmetry. So yeah. Richie has, at some point of his career, developed methods to look at this asymmetry as a, as a, as a, as a factor, a predictor of, of um, some aspect of well-being. Okay, so uh -huh. it, it is a measure, and so there's a theory about why that measure would be indicative of, of certain disposition to act and, and therefore to be more engaged in, in, in action and so on. Um, and so, well, it is what it is, and, and, but, but, but at some point, uh, there was just this very primary study that actually, by the way, it was not, I don't think it was very solidly replicated, but th when there was a, a, one of the experts had a very strong asymmetry, and then suddenly that becomes the marker of, 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 of well-being or happiness to the point that when I was in a meeting in Europe at some point, huh. I went to, you know, we had a break at some point in a, so one of the scientists invited us at his house and we had lunch and some cookies. And at the end, one of the, the spouse of the, of the scientists came to me and, and um, you know, took me apart, very worried. And, and she asked me, okay, listen, I'm a, I'm a, I can ask you a very private question, blah, blah, blah. And, and she just told me that she, she got a, some brain injury in the past and, and the, on the left side of the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. And she asked me whether I, she think I will, she would be unable to be happy. Oh, wow. And you, you wow. realize that, 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 that that's how, you know, from a very, as a scientist, something, a very, very coarse measure that tells us predicting a very teeny part of the variance of a yeah. very abstract construct came to something as, as complex and... Uh, subtle as happiness, and and I realize that there is really um, know, a risk to 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 reify some of these constructs. Yeah. Um, and um, okay, but yeah. So uh, there, but there's a very touching story. So the reason I asked this, this this actually ties in, Antoine, to what we started at the very beginning about you know um, the the importance of respecting worldviews. The, the yeah. The, the caution against hegemony and, and dominance, because here's here's what I see, and this is the reason I'm asking this. Again, I'm trying to make it for our listeners as practical as as uh, it can be, because on one level, um, it it seems fair to say, just as a point of argument, that when traditional scientists look at the world, uh, the very questions we're positing here, they're not even on the table. I mean, you know, to ask to even challenge the notion of ontology, of externality, they would say, well, that's, that's just, that's psychosis, that's psychotic. Mm -hmm. um, but is in fact, let, let's, let, let's look at this from the other lens. Is in fact the psychosis exactly that assertion? Is in fact the psychosis, not challenging it, the psychosis is actually asserting that there is something out there that truly exists. So that's one extreme. And, that, and you could say somewhat categorically as a, as a general, or, or orienting generalization, most scientists live in that world. And here's where it becomes interesting to me, Antoine, because many, many spiritual practitioners, um, <clears throat> I believe, sometimes fall into the opposite extreme. It, you know, it's, it, it's very interesting when we talk about fundamentalists and extremists, we often see, um, we don't, we see in others what we don't see in ourselves. We don't see, we're blind to our own levels of fundamentalism, our own extremisms, <clears throat> and whether it's the extremism of materialism, physicalism, or ontology, or, and this is where I'm going now, 
The other common um, error, the extreme of, of practitioners, meditators, of um, idealism, of mentalism, that it's all just mind. And, and so I, I think on one level, that transition is extremely important provisionally to de-reify, um, you know, and, and to kind of extricate ourselves from this materialistic, physicalistic world based on ontology, swinging the pendulum over provisionally to a more epistemological, you know, it's all mind, literally, as you know, in Buddhism, chitta matra, mind only. But then it's very easy to get stuck in that extreme, you know, that, that you're stuck in this kind of mentalistic view. So maybe the middle way, right? I mean, is, is that a too facile yeah. approach? No, no, no. no. Somewhere there's the middle way between those two views. And again, like we said at the outset, honor and respect both valid trajectories. And you know, somehow... I, I totally agree. And, and uh, just to say that that's, um, um, the, the, the fact that you, you have this in, 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 our, in, our, in this centric framework, the fact that you are capable to have this reality and to build this intersubjective reality is, is actually um, a demonstration almost. I mean, that there is some shared intersubjective reality a demonstration that there are regularity in the world, and, and this regularity. And then now you could ask the, you know, you can do um, big question whether that, that they are, they will already be there, or whether it's it's. Uh, but, but but, and what is the meaning of it metaphysically? But the truth is that there are regularity and there are prediction. There are, you know, if I, um, uh, you can you. They are so robust that I can go in a plane to up, to to come right. to in Colorado one day, and 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 so so there is stuff that are highly predictable and reliable. There are theory and there are they 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 are high level of reliability. Um, now, what what type of ontology you want to make from that type of highly reliable predictable phenomena? That's well, it's it's. Uh, I'm curious what what's what would be the the typical response from a, from a, say the tradition. Like say, how in the the Dokshin Mahamudra tradition will they Dokshin Mahamudra tradition will they will they um, describe that level of how would they account for that yes. stability of phenomena? Yes, without exactly. Being, without being without falling into uh, uh, yeah. Well, I think, again, it's like what we started talking about earlier, you know, <clears throat> centrifuging out relative from absolute truth, that at relative levels, we have a consensual reality. You know, we share, and again, this is this is Dharma speak, we share collective karma, and therefore, I, I love what you just said, this kind of intersubjective realism that therefore brings about a kind of consensual reality. Um, and And somehow, you know, karmically, we co-create the world in this way, and and we we share the fruits of this kind of relative um, predictability. You know that works; it absolutely does work. But you know, fundamentally, it it, it does fall short um, in terms of lasting happiness. You know, uh, so-called awakening, peace, tranquility, and all that sort of thing. So, um, in in techno speak again. They talk about it in the Yogacara tradition. This is what's called the Paratantra, you know, the dependently mere, uh, dependently arising mere appearance. That there is, in fact, um, 
provisionally something, so to speak, out there. And, and this is where, this is the way I relate to all this right now, Antoine, and this is another way to say what I'm kind of hinting at, is that to me, when um, I explore this issue, it points to the plasticity. You know, there's, there's all this traffic, as you all so well know, you know, everything's plastic these days, right? Neuroplasticity, um, especially. I like to think of all this is a type of uh, ontic plasticity, uh, ontological plasticity. Yeah. Then, in other words, by by that, what I mean is again this idea of what I talked about earlier. We don't grow into a world; we grow with that world. And so, depending on where we are, as a as an individual and then as a species, in a very real way, the world, because it's not completely independent of us actually responds in kind. So it responds to our developmental levels. It responds to the things that we bring to the world. And because so many of us bring so many similar things, we have these realms of predictability, consensuality, and the like. But to me, what, what becomes most important here, and this again is why I love exploring this using the medium of the dream, because fundamentally, when I work with this material, Antoine, a dream becomes a code word for manifestation of mind. That's what dream is for me ultimately. And so therefore, it, it, and again, this may seem a little bit on the mentalist, idealistic side, but to me, it begets this notion that the world really is plastic. There isn't anything solid lasting, reified, completely independent of us. It dances with us. And again, Varela's beautiful work. Mm -hmm. And that depending on the way we ask our questions, the way we do our science, you know, I, I often remembered of what I think it was Heisenberg once said, what we discover in science is not reality itself, but reality as it's revealed through our methods of investigation. So depending even the way we ask our questions and do our science, that brings forth a particular reality, right? So I'm not sure that's completely addressing what you're asking, but that that's no, what- it, it's, it's really not, it makes it a, no, no, it, it's it's very congruent and uh, and and uh, um, well, well, yeah, um, just uh, no, it, it it makes sense. The 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 the, the just to respond to what you, the, the the balance that you try to describe. What is difficult sometimes is that when when you you describe this very uh, this style of practice that, sound, that really put heavily the, the emphasize on, on the mental training or the suspension of, of, of questioning reality. Some people can naively think the opposite, that it's really everything is equal. It doesn't matter and so on. So exactly. It, it's, it's, a, it, it's really a, um, a challenge, I think, to, to be able to, to uh, integrate it's really about integration, this this, this perspective, and and uh, and, um, and that's what 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 makes uh, the framework from Francisco so I think modern and so uh, inspiring is that you you need just to live with this this difficulty and you can't you can't actually you ultimately it's just a, a process and you can't you can't at the end. Uh, need to let go of trying to 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 fall in one way or the other, but you just know that you don't want to. Going any of in any of this extreme, and and that that's a yeah. trick, yeah. but it's uh, yeah. And what what he referred to is that as the power of the open question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
the ability to remain agnostic, um, the ability to have an open mind and an open um, heart, really, so that we we can accommodate all these worldviews. And I think maybe that kind of thing is worth throwing back into the mix because a large part of what I think underlies what we're talking here is is just a deep appreciation, understanding of different views, the realities that those views disclose, the respect of those other views, whether they're these larger cat classifications of one being spiritual, <clears throat> one being so-called scientific, and the ability to just make room for all of them. Um, but then again, the near enemy of that, and this again, this would be an interesting question for you, somewhat along the same lines, is is in fact the danger of a kind of radical relativism, you know, postmodernism. Yeah. That, that yeah. there there isn't this endless sliding scale. You can't, like you said earlier, you can't just say everything goes. There has to be some some kind of, um, and again, you can see this in politics with fake news and and exactly. the fact that where's where where is reality? So these questions yeah. actually have immediate import. There has to be some referent. There has to be some kind of arbiter of truth. Because otherwise you end up in these ridiculous political rabbit holes where there is no truth. It's all fake news and there's no fundamental reality. So what we're talking about here, you know, again, has applications at even those levels. Yeah. And and that's why the, I think, um, what, what, what it's, it's, uh, essential, I think is that you, you have also a a method, method of investigation. Um, so, um, um, yeah, these, these days, I mean, uh, it, the, the, what I've seen in the in <clears throat> what's happened in the recent uh, in such, such recent election, for instance, when you you have all these fake news and conspiracy theory, it's uh, the the problem problem of of again, it's a problem of epistemology. How can you uh, how can you demonstrate and 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 um, something is is false? And and uh, so that's why I think science as a, as a, as a and into some degree meditation, it's really a tool to be to be able to question some of these um, some of these mental projections, and that's why I think the, the, the that that's uh, why the 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 um, experimental framework of science or the the investigation of the nature of perception and reality in meditation are so complementary and yes. and useful to to prevent falling in one extreme or the yes. other. So yes. if you want with a with a with a, the the cultivation of wisdom, you you prevent the, the fall into naivism, and the the science prediction prevents you to 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 fall into like the like the naive relativism of everything is the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So what 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 view? <clears throat> so if someone was to pin you in a corner, Francisco, and say, "I'm not letting you out of this room until you tell me." What what worldview do you subscribe to? I mean, if someone comes up to you and says, "Okay, are you a critical realist? Are you an idealistic monist, or whatever?" What what view, um, as a philosopher, scientist, and practitioner, um, do you um, kind of maintain, or you know, what 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 framework do you operate out of when someone asks you, "What is your view of, of reality?" Similar to what I was asking a little bit earlier, but now yeah, a little bit more I, personal. Well, I, I don't know if it's a. Uh, um, uh, I, I guess it's really, it's really, it's. Uh, it's also depends on the questions. Yeah. It depends on the question. Depends, if, on, depends on what hat you're wearing, also. Is this, is yeah, it, yes, uh, also, but, but it's really, 
it really depends on the question. If you ask a question, let me give you an example. Uh, again, it's, it's, I think it's important to be, maybe you could call it a, a form of pragmatism, a pragmatic, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know exactly, but to give you an example, uh, it's really about, about whether what works in life in a very pragmatic way. Uh, and if I give you the example again that I used before of, of, uh, of a medical example, that sometimes it's useful to, to, to be able to help someone with a, a drugs because that's really what's, what's going to be in, that that's going to be able to, to treat certain condition. Sometimes you need to, 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 to affect more, to, to have, uh, employ also and, uh, and so the, the mental conditions. Uh, and so, uh, and it's dependent if you question, so, so it's really dependent on your questions and, 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 and so, so, so give you an example of Francisco who was in a, to give you just two examples. If Francisco was, is, uh, was uh, anesthetized yeah. during his liver transplant, and you ask him this question at that moment, he will tell you, well, I think what's really helpful at that moment is, is to be, is understanding the nature of the mind and to be released from suffering and appearance. And that's really, that would be what he would need at that time. Maybe, but before, maybe he was before going, uh, before, but 10 minutes later, but before, uh, yeah, but at the same time, he was also needed to have an, a transplant of, of his liver. So he needs to rely on certain process of reality, which is yeah, this reality. So both are integrated, actually. Beautiful, beautiful example. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really the most important point, isn't it? So even the question, that's interesting, because so therefore, even me asking the question is a little bit off, because, the, you know, the it's just, uh, again, this kind of um, the fluidity, the adaptability of our own views in relation to the circumstances. Yeah, and, and, and that's, so in a way, at the end, if you come back to it, at the end is experience. Because there you go. There experience you go. will tell you when you need to shift more into, um, into more like uh, action-oriented. Yes. Or are you more into uh, update of your, of your mental uh, domain? Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. That's really helpful. So Antoine, as we, as we slowly start to wind down, I, I want to go in, in two final little directions with you. Uh, I'm fine. I, I could talk to you all day. This is so much fun. Thanks. It's really fun. Um, but I want to talk to you about two things. One is, I, I, again, the last uh, little return to this topic. Is it possible to um, create studies where one can, in fact, um, study the experience of non-duality. In other words, here, let me let me tell you what I'm thinking here. Uh -huh. um, when, when I start to, you know, after decades of practice, um, I start to be become a little bit more familiar with, with the way my mind works. Um, I can notice correlative changes in my internal state with my external perception. You know, where I can somewhat akin to what we we're just saying um, in more conventional. Like when I sit down to meditate, for instance, at first, I, I perceive a dualistic world. I still very clearly see myself separate from this reality. But, you know, over the course of a meditation session sometimes, especially if I'm in retreat, as I start to change internally, my world responds in kind. It's no longer so independent of me. It's no longer out there. It becomes more intimate, becomes more non-dualistic. And so... Um, as I start to look at the, the, the Buddhist descriptions of this, um, you know, there is a mechanism, as you know, from the Yogacara, talking about the seventh consciousness, right? That there's, 
there's this very, very interesting, and this is my terminology here, kind of flickering of consciousness. Um, this very rapid, in fact, it's so rapid, honestly, Antoine, um, that until we slow down, it's a little bit like tachistoscopes. The rapidity is so fast that it's, it's steady, it's constant. And I think that's one reason we don't see it. it the constancy actually masks the, the experience. But as you start to slow down the, the tachistoscope, you, you, know, you start to see like, interesting, we were talking about earlier with attentional blink. You actually start to see, well, hey, my experience is not discontinuous. My, my, this constant contraction of some of the consciousness back to self that creates, by the way, both self and ex external world, I can start to slow that down. I can start to de-automatize that. And then I can start to see, and this is where, you know, maybe a, a study design, that in these momentary flickers, I actually notice with each reference back to self, I generate the illusion of self and other. And so duality actually is a construct. And, and in my meditation, I can see it. Do you think there's any way to study that? Is there, is there a way to image this? Uh, have you done this or thought about the ways to study um, non-duality and therefore by implication, the dovetails around to what we were talking about earlier, how in fact we construct duality. And from that, again, that returns to that fundamental question, from that primary construction, right? Then come secondary constructions, pain, suffering, blah, blah the whole phenomenal display. Do you think it's feasible? Is this within the domain? Well, I, would, I would love to, I would be honored to, to discuss that with you at some point. And uh, I mean, we tried many ways. Um, I think it's possible. Uh, I think, uh, I think what is not possible, well, I'll just say that. Um, I think it's possible to, to get very close to that, to, to that structure. Um, Okay, how do you articulate it <laughs> clearly? I think I think we can we can probably arrive to a state when you 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 can you can uh, probably have a neural correlate of non non duality uh, that is uh, yeah. Yeah, subjectively yeah, yeah. Uh, validated uh, um, in in the immediate moment following it. So you know it, it's more it's more it's more. I mean, I don't know. Would you agree to say that it's a nonsense to to? Well, I don't know that that you you I don't know maybe we, that you could you could you could you could retrospectively through retention describe the immediate moment that that's right right after getting in that that sense of of space and when uh -huh. uh, but but but. But once you you things appear and, and yep. you, you answer that that's too late in a way and yep. and so you could you could you could um, get at the at the at the or to use a metaphor the, at the at, as very close to the the uh, the, the water spring you know the yes the well at the source of, of 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 a consciousness and to be able to to track down at the maybe at the at the scale of fifty milliseconds two hundred milliseconds exactly. what happened right before exactly exactly but but, but you. That that will be as far we can go, I think. But and you can make a so you can make a contrast and, and try to, to 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 maybe characterize a brain in terms of connectivity pattern, whatever. And, and yeah, and, and so so yeah, it would be fun to discuss that at some point. You know, the reason I asked this, it's a little bit like the one of the last encounters we had at that somewhat I think legendary meeting. Remember, 
with uh, Evan Thompson, the, the Tuknam event, yeah. right? So yeah. to me, honestly, Antoine, and again, this is a, probably a bit beyond what we can talk about here with our group. To me, this kind of study has the potential to have the same kind of impact as the Tuknam study, where if you can actually take someone, and this is where the ability to take someone who is in, in duality, so you put them in the MRI, they're still, you know, their default at that point is this constancy of this flicker, you know, flicker fusion. You're seeing the world in a dualistic way. And then as you start to slow down, your reality starts to deconstruct. And just like I was talking about earlier, there should be, I would think, like you're saying, neural correlates. Yeah, and, and we, we, we're studying that right now, if you want. We, we have a measuring oh, yeah. right, of, of, rest, of, of, of the neural correlate of someone meditating in open presence, for instance. But I don't think, but I, and we have some measure that, that look at the hierarchy. I mean, I can go into detail this, but it, but it's a, but it, I don't think that's going to be the most interesting study to do uh -huh. because fMRI is a little bit too slow for, to describe what you precisely do it. It's, it's, now we need to do something with a finite time resolution. Like a, that's what I, that's what, I, what would that be? What would that be? EG or MEG? It's that fast? It can pick that up? Yeah, uh, well, you, the time scale is at the scale of the milliseconds. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think the type of process that you're describing, I, I would speculate, probably occurs at the level of, um, if one moment of consciousness is around 300 milliseconds, yeah. 150 to 200 milliseconds. In an, in an untrained mind. In an untrained mind. Probably right. the, the gap that you're describing are, probably occur, I would think, Around the moment, maybe, maybe I, I, I don't know. It's anything, anything between ten milliseconds to forty milliseconds, maybe. It, you know, it's a little bit like the, the initial studies that that Francisco was doing, trying to find yeah, a yeah, mind exactly. moment. It's like yeah. trying to find a mind moment. It's well, if you want to be fun to discuss at some point, I'm. Uh, yeah, we can um, next time you are in uh, Europe, or if I am around, uh, it'll be great to. Oh, we can chat if you want by 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 Skype one of these days. I think it would be super interesting because, yeah. you know, if in fact, you know, because this whole, again, it comes down to this otherwise outrageous spiritual mumbo jumbo, this rhetoric of non-duality. I mean, you talk to a scientist about non-duality and they go, oh, just go talk to the philosophers, go talk to the new agers. But non-duality is real. In fact, yeah. it's more real than this. And so, yeah, no, just, I mean, I just, I just been, uh, one risk that I see these days is that I I, uh, I start to witness some scientists starting to 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 go into that that things and uh, when when they they uh, yeah with with uh, without necessarily a direct understanding of it and it and it, it and I realize it's it's uh, there are there are a lot of metaphysics around the, the that exactly. style of practice and and uh, also uh, so I, I I'm just worried we're going to see a lot of yeah. Between between neuroscientists who don't necessarily understand what what's happening and practitioners that that are, that are not necessarily well trained and exactly. and, and that, that's going to be I think there will probably be a lot of noise for a couple of exactly. years, but yeah. but that's the nature of uh, that's the nature of science. Of science. So, but, yeah. we, we, but anyway, that's well that's interesting because that's exactly the other question I wanted to ask you um, as we start to slowly wind down. When you when you look at you know your crystal ball, you're you're so uniquely situated. Uh, you're you're really at the genesis. You were there at the genesis with Francisco and, and Ritchie of this new astounding field of contemplative neuroscience. 
What do you see when, when you cast your gaze into the future, both as the promise and peril? So what you just said is, in fact, one of the perils. Um, lack of methodology, rigor, uh, rack, lack of consistency and experience. I mean, there, it, this stuff is so difficult to study. So maybe in a, in, a, in a few minutes, when you look forward, what excites you and what concerns you about the future of, of neurophenomenology? Well, well, I mean, maybe not, not broader than neurophenomenology, the research on meditation. I think what excites me is that I found so many amazing amazing human person like starting to, to do practice meditation. I mean, I'm involved in a master program for medical doctors uh, in Lyon. We do, they start to retreat, and I see the profound effect it has on, on their practice, clinical practice. We start to, to also program for medical students. And it really like percolates the whole culture. Like, uh, and I don't have time to involve in school, but there's also research in schools. So all of that is extremely beneficial and very exciting. Kind of tra translational uh, research, translational. I'm very, I'm very like, positive and, and I think there's very serious genuine practitioners and and, uh, and um, Western, so it's great. Uh, I also very excited, so now in time of science, I'm my, I think the, the, the next push and that's what we try to do in, in our group over the last uh, two or three years, we're gonna try to go at uh, really the full bloom uh, neurophenology. I didn't have time to, to, to talk about it here, but it's... Sure. So there is a full bloom neurophenology, which is to use neurocomputation um, uh, to, to somehow, as a neutral, metaphysically neutral language to, to, to relate the experience, phenomenal invariant and experience with, with uh, physiology. And that will be Try, try, try to bridge these three, three levels of description of experience together yeah, in yeah. mutual constraint. That would be the, that would be the pinnacle of neurophenomenology, as Francisco wow. Uh, wow. had an idea. And so we, I, I just had a chance to to uh, work with some very brilliant students, and I, I hope they're going to make some some uh, some uh, progress on that topics in the in the next couple of years. That excited me, and now now in terms of the then it, then it's you know it's and the rest uh, I, I I think um, as you say that what is difficult is that that's, um, as a as a scientist you the paradox that you need to be very productive and you need to be always over 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 committed and over uh, to, to work a crazy hour just to be to be able to catch up with uh, all the what's happening yeah what's happening the the I mean, um, the lifestyle of a scientist is not very contemplative. Yeah. Uh, no, it's true. I mean, and it's that, a lot that, of work. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. but the, the risk, the risk is that you, it's very hard actually to create time to, yeah. That, that's why the paradox to, to be able to, to yeah. really slow down, as you just described before, and to, to have some genuine inspiration um, yep. and to embody also what we're studying. So, so I think it, that's something that's, um, that is difficult, and I, I hope that there will be uh, collectively we will find a way to to really support uh, a new generation of scientists that can be that when we create space for them instantaneously. So academically, there will be a space for them to be to, to slow down, and so that, that's, 
It's fantastic. And it's, a, it's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? I just had this image in institutionalized contemplation. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. That's a contradiction in terms, but actually honoring, I, I, and again, pardon the interruption, but I think it's so important, honoring the importance of the work, honoring the importance of, of the first person. Um, and, and this ties in beautifully. And, and, and oh, for that, sorry to interrupt. I mean, for that also, what is critical is that we need to, to go away from uh, a certain version of science that is, that is really uh, a like a I mean applied or when you are goal oriented and uh, and and uh, when you need to demonstrate like the, the efficacy of something immediately, I mean we need to come back to the like the, the kind of the aesthetics of, of fundamental research and, and 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 not just like these days you need to everything is slightly short sighted. You need, when you write a grant on meditation, you always need to to just demonstrate that you're going to treat like you know depression. Uh, yeah, yeah. Chronic pain, all that stuff, and which is great and it's true. Yeah. But yeah. at the end, the risk that we miss what you really voiced tonight beautifully, which is uh, the, 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 the the fundamental source of suffering, which is this this um, uh, delusions, egoic delusion, delusion. And I think that's going to be very challenging to to be able to uh, um, create a. Yeah, to create space for that 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 type of things. Yeah, what what a fantastic way to start to close, because really to me it's like you know very interesting. You know, as a philosopher, you may appreciate this that, you know, in many ways you could say philosophy, psychology, to a certain extent, uh, applied research, in a very real way, comes about or came about to solve the problems of duality. So mm -hmm. why not solve the problem of duality? Then you don't need philosophy. Then you don't need psychology. Then, then you've gotten to the nintig. See, then you've gotten mm -hmm. to the hard essence. Solve mm -hmm. the problem of duality, mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say it becomes irrelevant. It just becomes um, adventitious. You know, this this to me again this is why I'm so yeah. excited about exploring this. So, as we as we I've been promising to close, but we we have to wind up for your purposes. How the last question, my friend, is. In decades of this kind of work, how has your your own research affected you as a person? If I might ask that question, how has it ch um, changed you as a practitioner? Because you know, one of the challenges that you face, I'm sure, as a scientist and a practitioner, is this um, <laughs> ridiculous notion of objectivity. You know, I mean, what, how objective are you? That's a different issue. How objective? is a, a meditator when they're doing science that's maybe infused by these underlying motifs. But more specifically, very <clears throat> practically, <clears throat> how has your research and your own work informed and transformed you as a person and as a, as a practitioner? You know, because I'm sure many people, when they're listening to this sort of thing, they're going, geez, like, well, why should a meditator care about this stuff, right? <laughs> what, what is it going to do for me? Um, on one level, we've been talking a lot about exactly what some of those benefits are, of course. But if you don't mind sharing in your own experience, how, how has your work informed and transformed you? So you mean as a more, um, just to reformulate the question, how the, the neuroscientific inquiry uh, informed my, 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 uh, my practice? Yes. As a, yes. Yes. Um, 
Well, uh, I, I think it's, it's um, one way to say to say that. Um, I often have this question about what what science can bring to um, contemplation. So there is the obvious, uh, uh, as you just say, the obvious uh, sociological uh, uh, effect of, of 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 the practice of of, of, the, of the knowledge of science, how it can help relieve suffering. Another one is uh, which is less interesting, which is more insp inspiring people, but may maybe. To go to your, your point, I think um, mm, two, two things. I think maybe science give you obstacles, hmm. like, like it's give you. Uh, I mean, it's finding an effect like uh, not obstacle, but it's it's force you to have extreme extreme clarity and rigor, and a clarity conceptual clarity about what you're doing and what you're studying. Nice. And and and, and I think it's it's provide gradually also. Um, uh, a way to, yeah, to, to to articulate certain certain relationship between different aspects of experience with, with with some some clarity, conceptual clarity, which has also some predictive values, and 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 in a way, this clear, conceptual clarity can be a way to uh, then uh, uh, yeah share experience and communicate. And and then and there, therefore uh, help people uh, uh, also uh, understand their own mind. So potentially, yeah. so, so fr framed differently, could be it has a could be a, a pedagogical tools or a way to um, describe um, de describe a, a certain um, True, true, true uh, relative view that could be useful. So there are many, many ways. But essentially, it's a way. It's a way to to clarify uh, and conceptually true, true concepts. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, it's fantastic. Antoine, this has been so so fun. How can people learn more about you? Uh, are there ways that they can support you? I, I always allow at the end, um, you know, references to your work, to your papers, to your site. Um, for people who are interested in what you do, how can they learn more about you? This day, I've been struggling for <clears throat> three day, three years to just to 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 write my own uh, website, but uh, I'm trying to I'm I'm getting there. Uh, I I will I will hope to to have a a clear website with all these publications available soon. Um, I I hope to also at some point to when I have time also to to try to 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 summarize some of these ideas that we just discussed. And actually, sometimes it's, it's actually good to discuss with you too. To, to, to explain in the form of a book, maybe, but we'll see if I have time in one of these one of these years. But but then in terms of the support, I mean, we it's always good to to get support if there is anyone who, who can support us. Um, you know, it's uh, um, I, I, I think there the way we, the type of research we do, if that I, I think could uh, we could gain a lot of freedom if if we have some some funding to to really focus on this type of more um, ambitious uh, uh, questions and uh, but 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 uh, yeah so sure it's always useful otherwise uh, there is always many ways to to do continue to do research so no worries yeah but thank you so much it was really fun to see you and oh, I, it's, it's, it would be great oh. to to continue to to 
play with, uh, with you to get uh, feedback or suggestion for an experiment. That would be great to do it at some point. Yeah, I, I agree, Antoine. So, so nice. Thank you. T I know how busy you are. It means the world to me that you would take time to mm -hmm. discuss this stuff. You know, you, you, you sit in a very unique place um, um, as a kind of a, a diplomat from all these different worlds. You're very uniquely situated. And so it's been a total delight to reconnect with you. Thank you so much for your time and energy. And um, let's, let's make our paths cross as many times as we can. Thank you, my dear. Yes. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I had such a fun time talking to my friend. And thanks, of course, to Antoine for sharing his vast knowledge and wisdom. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a lot going on right now. But until next time, pleasant dreams.